Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Door, a weekly broadcast that examines what Lutheran Christians believe about God, the world, and us. I'm Pastor Brett Cornelius of Gethsemane Lutheran Church, and I invite you to join us for the next hour. And later, we will take questions at 740-383-9944, that's 740-383-WWGH, or on Facebook at the Wittenberg Door, where you can submit your questions live. Please join us now on the Wittenberg Door. Good Friday morning, everyone, and welcome to the Wittenberg Door. We're glad to have you with us, and we hope you'll enjoy the program this morning. The Wittenberg Door is sponsored by Gethsemane Lutheran Church at 219 East Church Street in Marion, Ohio, and the Central Ohio Missions Association. The Wittenberg Door is also a call-in program, so as the broadcast progresses today, if you have a question or a comment for the host, me, Pastor Brett Cornelius, you can reach us at 740-383-WWGH. That's 383-9944. Now, we usually start our program with a news story, as we will today. But I want to remind you folks uh, that you can not only ask questions or bring comments about the things we're talking about. If you have a news story that you're interested in and interested in hearing um, maybe some opinion from a, a Christian perspective uh, about a news story, bring it up. Give us a call, and uh, we'd be happy to entertain, uh, entertain what you have in mind as well as what we're going to discuss today. So we invite you to Call in also if you have a news story that you would like to comment or have a question about. Uh, so what's in the news this week? What's the big news story that everybody's talking about? Well, in the aftermath of the terrible attack, one of our presidential candidates, Donald Trump, has called for restrictions on immigration into the U.S. by Muslim applicants. <clears throat> As this proposal caused quite a stir. The White House said that a proposal like that disqualifies Trump from running for president. And the Republican Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, said the proposal does not represent the values of the Republican Party or the American nation. Well, we're going to talk about that, but uh, this proposal has resulted in no little hand-wringing, along with accusations of fascism and even the charge that it encourages violence against Muslims. So um, leaving aside some of those charges for a minute, let's just uh, focus really on two questions. And the first question is, and this is really what we're concerned about when we bring up these news stories, is how should a Christian treat Muslim immigrants or their Muslim neighbors, right? Uh, how should you, as a citizen, if you're a Christian, what should be your attitude? What, what, what should you do? How should you treat your Muslim neighbor or, or the immigrant that uh, settles into your neighborhood? Well, I think the answer is pretty obvious from a Christian perspective. Uh, what Christ requires us to do is to love our neighbor, right? Uh, even love our enemy. And this is the great uh, parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus, when one of the Pharisees says... Um, you know, uh, what are the great commandments of the law? And Jesus says, you shall love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, then the Pharisee then asks a follow-up question. He says, 
And who is my neighbor? And actually what Luke tells us is, he says, and wishing to justify himself. In other words, this uh, commandment to love our neighbor is pretty broad, right? Uh, so uh, can we narrow it down some? You know, in other words, there's not really, I don't really want to love all my neighbors. Uh, there are a few that I can put up with. But uh, do I really have to love all my neighbors? And so when Jesus tells the parable, he says, uh, you know, that a man was going on the road from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. And this was uh, this happened to be a kind of a notorious uh, path. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, robberies occurred there, and you know Jesus's listeners would have been familiar with this road and would have been familiar with the kind of things that happen on this road. You know, it's like uh, if we were to say um, uh, something about Harlem or uh, South Central Los Angeles, right? Uh, or the south side of Chicago, you know, uh, there, there ha- there's a certain kind of, you know, the Bronx, maybe, or, you know, uh, the west side of, of New York, Manhattan. Uh, you know, there's a certain um, history and uh, a record of violence that goes on in certain places, you know, and this was like kind of that. That was the uh, first century equivalent of that. So... Um, so his listeners would have understood this. Well, this man going along from Jerusalem, Jericho, he falls in among robbers, and he's beaten nearly to death, thrown in a ditch, robbed, and, and left for dead. And you have the, uh, some other travelers that come by, a, uh, a priest walking down that road, comes by the man and sees him laying in the ditch and walks to the other side, Right? And then you have a Levite also. Uh, uh, we might say today somebody who might be like a, you know, a deacon of the church, okay? And he comes by and he sees him laying in the ditch and passes by on the other side of the road and leaves him there. And then a Samaritan. Now, Jesus' first century listeners, the Jews, when they heard the word Samaritan, their ears would have pricked up because the Samaritans were their enemies, uh, they had no dealings with Samaritans. The Samaritans were these, these bad people, right? These these heretics, these these lost people. Uh, um, and so Jesus says the Samaritan comes and he sees him laying in the ditch. Sees his enemy laying in the ditch, and he picks him up and he pours uh, oil on his wounds and he bandages up his wounds and he he takes him in puts him on his own beast, Jesus says, and he takes him to the inn. In other words, he takes him with what would have been you know, the nearest thing then to a hospital. Uh, he's going he's gonna to take care of this man. And not only has he bandaged up his wounds and taken him to some authority, no, he takes him to the inn and he takes care of him. And then as he leaves the inn on business, he says to the innkeeper, uh, gives him two denarii, which is two days' wages. And he says, you take care of him, and if, if you spend anything else getting this guy back in shape, then I'll pay for it when I get back. In other words, he assumes responsibility for the welfare of this fellow and, and for his healing. He's going he's gonna, to uh, take care of him. 
uh, well, so uh, Jesus says to the Pharisee who asked the question, uh, go, who, who was, he asked him, who was, uh, who proved to be a neighbor to this man? And of course, the Pharisee says, the, the one who helped him. And he tells him, you know, go thou and do likewise. In other words, do that, do that. Now, that is, of course, law. And there's a really, there's a kind of a, a, a rich history of tradition uh, gone dating back to St. Augustine, which sees Christ in this parable. In other words, um, uh, while we were yet enemies, St. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, God sent his son to rescue us. And St. Augustine saw in, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, us, we who were beat up by sin and death, laying in the ditch, helpless. Uh, the law didn't help us. The priest and the Levites passed us by, right? In other words, Moses couldn't help us. But Christ does, and he comes down, and he lifts us up, and he he brings us to the church, <laughs> where, uh, where uh, the church cares for sinners. And, um, and uh, that is the place of healing, the church, where sin is forgiven and, pe- and sinners are restored. So there's a very rich tradition of seeing Christ in that parable. Christ is the one who rescues us. But there is an element of law to it as well. So we would say as Christians... This is what Jesus is. This is what Jesus does by his life, death, and resurrection. His dying on the cross, he has rescued us from sin. By his rising from the dead, he has rescued us from death in the grave. And, uh, and by his promise to return and on the last day, judge the living and the dead and receive us into his Father's kingdom. Um, he is, uh, he's, he's the good Samaritan to us. Uh, and because that's who Jesus is, that's also who Christians should be. So if we were to look around today, we would say, who is it for us that is most like the Samaritans? That is, it is most like those who we distrust, most like those who uh, we would most readily say are our enemies, Um. Uh, most like those who are willing to attack us, I guess, uh, well, we would say, you know, the Muslims today. You know, in light of, you know, 9-11 and the D.C. shooters and the Fort Hood shootings and uh, the Chattanooga shootings and most recently the San Bernardino shootings, it just seems to happen. May have been another one here yesterday with a with a college student who seems to be a, seems to have been radicalized. So a neighbor, a Muslim immigrant moves in to your neighborhood. How do you treat them? You know, how do you treat the person who's in need? Well, you treat them as if they're your friend. And you treat them with love and respect. And uh, and this is what God means when he says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What it means to love your neighbor as yourself means to love your enemy. It means, uh, it means to love the ones who don't exactly have your best interest at heart, right? right. Which could be the Muslims. It could be uh, you know, any, anyone that uh, the Christian, you know, political opponent that, uh, you know, they might be killing each other, but they certainly have different goals in mind politically. 
And uh, so when they're when they're in trouble, what do we do? We we do them good. We treat them with kindness. We treat them with love, right? So that's uh, that's almost unchallengeable. Uh, I, and, I, and if you're a Christian and and you challenge what I've just said, I I do invite you to call and discuss that with me. I think it's pretty clear cut in Scripture what it is that the Christian is required required to do in light of God's law, and especially in light of God's law to love your neighbor. And in Jesus' own teaching to love your enemy, right? So, what does that mean for America as a nation? And this is where we might have, uh, uh, you know, we have to take a little detour here because civil government is not the same as an individual person. It's pretty clear in Romans chapter 12. The way that uh, St. Paul addresses the Christian, that a Christian is, you know, St. Paul says, Beloved, don't take your own vengeance, but leave room for the wrath of God. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him to, give him to drink. For in doing so, you pour burning coals on his head. You don't, you don't take your own vengeance. In any case, Christians are not the instruments, individual Christians are not the instruments of vengeance. Uh, and, and boy, we should learn this. And yet, in the very next chapter, at the end of Romans 12, you have Jesus, uh, you have St. Paul giving these instructions to Christians who are in Christ and how we should live in, in light of Christ. But in the next chapter, he talks about civil government. And he tells us what the role of civil government is. And the role of civil government is is we might say, folks, that it's a role of violence. Whereas the individual is not, is not to uh, uh, engage in violence. Um, you know, our, our civil government uh, recognizes our right to self-defense, of course. But, uh, but the, the government acts in justice and in vengeance. And St. Paul says there that, that God has given um, the sword, has put the, has put the sword in the hands of civil government so that they can execute justice and deter evil. And that's what civil government is all about. Civil government is there to deter evil uh, by punishing and, uh, and, and by protecting. The, uh, it brings order to society. So... Are we to say then that the civil government is to act in the same way as individual Christians are to act? And I think the answer there is no. If we have a civil government, uh, uh, for instance, our federal government, that uh, assumes the role of defender in relation to other nations, if another nation attacks our country, we don't want our civil government, and it's not the civil government's role, to turn the other cheek, right? Uh, that, that's not what our, our civil government is there for. It's there to um, protect and to defend. So what about this proposal uh, about uh, allowing Muslims into the country? 
Is it unchristian for a presidential candidate to say we should restrict Muslim immigration into the country until we figure out how we distinguish between those who wish us harm and those who are innocent? And you can say, well, that's not Christian, right? And it's not Christian. It is not Christian. But the civil government isn't required to be Christian in that sense. It's not required to love the neighbor. It's not required to, to feed the enemy. It's required to uh, eliminate the enemy. That's what the civil government is there for, and eliminate the evildoer. And so is it, 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 can we say that it's wrong for the... It, we say that it's wrong for the civil government to um, restrict immigration. You know, uh, one of the things I found out about this as I was kind of thinking about this, and, and I think it's always a good idea to do when we're talking about our civil government and the role and responsibility of civil government, is to go back to the Constitution. Now, folks, I know some, a lot of you have smartphones. Thank you. A lot of you have uh, smartphones, and on the smartphones, you can download apps. And one of the apps that I think everyone should have on their phone is the U.S. Constitution app. It's just an app that you, you pull it up and you look at it. So, so, so in, in relation to this question, because we had many commentators saying, well, this is unconstitutional. Now, one of the things they cited as uh, a reason for it being unconstitutional is. They said there shall be no religious test, right? Well, that provision in the Constitution is about office seekers. In other words, uh, in the United States, there shall be no religious test for those who are seeking political office. So, for instance, we have uh, a Muslim congressman from Minnesota and I remember several years ago when he took office as a congressman, he swore, not on the Bible, but on the Koran, which is kind of exactly what you would want a Muslim to do, isn't it? You don't want a Muslim swearing on the Bible because that Bible is not, you know, the Bible is not really his book. You want him to swear on what he thinks is holy. And, uh, and so he took his oath on the, on the Koran, which was... You know, it's on, in, in the civil aspect, that's what you want. You want him to swear on his, on what he thinks is holy, right? Uh, so, of course, the Constitution says there shall be no religious test for those who are seeking political office. It that doesn't say anything about immigration. And you know, as I was looking at the Constitution again. <laughs> I discovered something that was kind of interesting. Uh, who is it that has the power uh, over immigration? The federal government or the state governments? Federal government. Well, uh, that's true now. What's that? Oh, okay. Uh, that's true now, but it wasn't true at the beginning of the country, there was it was the states that were in charge of uh, immigration. It wasn't until, and this is written right into the Constitution as one of the negative powers of Congress, that Congress had no power 
over migration or importation of persons until the year 1808, right? Yeah. And that, so when, when the Constitution was founded in 1797, um, the states had the power of immigration until the year 1808. Now, uh, we can still say that the states have power of immigration, but the Congress now has the power to uh, prohibit immigration. So uh, uh, let me read the provision to you, because this is kind of interesting. Uh, what time are we? We don't want to go too far here. But this is, uh, this is kind of an interesting thing. As we were, So it says here, and this is in uh, uh, Article 1, Section 9, and uh, uh, bullet number 1. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit. In other words, if the state thinks it's proper to admit somebody into their state, uh, then uh, th that's, that's what it's calling for. It shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1,808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation not exceeding $10 for each person. Right? right? In other words, what it sounds like here is it's the states that have the power of immigration, although in uh, Section 8 of Article 1, it's the federal government that has the power over um, the Congress can establish uh, uniform rules of, of naturalization, so to, to become a U.S. citizen. Oh. That's the Congress that has that power. But the states have the power of, is that a phone ringing? That noise in the background? Okay. Uh, but the states have the power of uh, Sounds like immigration there. And uh, Congress does have the power to prohibit immigration. At least now, as uh, past the year 1808, Congress has the power to limit immigration. But it doesn't say who or what they're to limit immigration to. So when we talk about immigration, we talk about what the Constitution says about immigration. There's nothing restrictive about Congress's power to prohibit. Now, remember that it's this presidential candidate, Trump, who, who uh, wants to limit uh, Muslims into the country. Well, if he gets elected president, does that mean he automatically has this power to uh, ban all Muslims from immigrating into the country? No. The president doesn't have that power. It's the Congress that makes these uh, it's the uh, Congress that has the power to prohibit immigration. Uh, and uh, something else I found out, from, from 1926 until 1964, there was no legal immigration into this country. So for, what, 40 years almost, for 40 years, we had no immigration, none. It wasn't until 65 when we started uh, allowing immigrants back into the country. Uh, and in 1952, a law was passed and signed by Truman, which uh, uh, gave the federal government the authority to ban certain classes or certain groups of people. So if we ask what the law says, well, the law does give uh, this power to the federal government. Now, uh, what should the federal government do? Well, the federal government should do what is in the interest of our nation, in the interest of the country, in the interest of the citizens. 
And if it's uh, likely that among the immigrants, if we if we took in a hundred thousand immigrants, and uh, we have, uh, by the way, there uh, an average of about fifteen percent of Muslims agree uh, have some sympathies for ISIS. Fifteen percent. So if we let in a hundred thousand immigrants, we're potentially letting in fifteen thousand people who have sympathy with ISIS, right? Right. So uh, does that mean every one of them would be a terrorist? No. Uh, but what it means is this is a kind of a little a bit, this is a danger. This is a danger if their loyalties are to something other than the United States. So does, does the federal government have the, 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 the responsibility to control that? Certainly they do. Is it fair that they would ban all Muslims? Well, maybe or maybe not, but it's it's certainly something that's up for discussion, right? Right. Yeah. So because that's that's the role of the federal government. That's the role of of government to protect the citizens. So, well, folks, uh, maybe you have a different opinion, and maybe you'd like to discuss that, and we'd certainly be happy to hear you. If you do have a question, the number is three eight three nine nine four four. That's three eight three. WWGH 740 is the area code. Uh, but we're going to shift gears here. And we're going to talk about not what's happened in the news last week, but, but the good news. And the good news of Jesus Christ and, and what he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Um, and uh, this, this good news is, is uh, shared every week at Gethsemane Lutheran Church and other, other churches too. Uh, the good news about Jesus is, is uh, the focus of all Christian churches. And uh, so this week is the uh, third Sunday in Advent. And Advent is uh, a word that means coming. Christians confess in the Apostles' Creed, for instance, that they believe in Jesus Christ who is uh, crucified under Pontius Pilate and on the third day rose again and ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead, right? And so when, when Christians think about Advent, what they're thinking about is that day when Jesus will come again, as he has promised, to judge the living and the dead and to, to bring all people to account. And for us Christians, that is uh, a good thing. It's something we're it's it's our final deliverance. It's our it's our uh, uh, the final accomplishment of our redemption of all that Jesus did for us on the cross and in His resurrection. Uh, he redeemed us there by his, not by soul, uh, uh, silver and gold, but by His precious blood and His innocent suffering and death. And uh, and and but that will only be complete on the last day when Jesus comes again for His people. And so. Um, uh, so we, we look forward to that day. We think about that day. And in our lessons, uh, we are focusing this time of year, we're focusing on, on that promise. So our lesson from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, is uh, verses uh, 1 through 8 is the lesson for this week. And it's, uh, it begins, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, 
Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. <laughs> and uh, so uh, so this message in, in Isaiah is a message of comfort. And it's not only a message of comfort, it's a message of comfort, comfort, right? Now that's uh, what we call a Hebraism. And a, a Hebraism is... Um, uh, when it repeats something twice in the scriptures, when you see something repeated twice, it's for emphasis. Today, we might say um, uh, very, you know, so, so something is hot, right? Uh, well, to, to, to emphasize that strongly, we would say something is very hot, right? Right. Well, the Hebrew would say, come, would say the thing hot, hot, right? Right. <laughs> so in other words, it's very, if he said hot, hot, you know it's very hot. If he said hot, 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 you know it's very, very hot. Uh, well, this is comfort, comfort. Uh, comfort, comfort my people. In other words, the message of the gospel and the good news of Jesus is meant to be for us a message of, is meant to be very comforting. In other words, what Jesus did for us in his life, death, and resurrection is very comforting for us. Well, why is it comforting? Uh, why does God uh, speak tenderly to you and I. Uh, well, he says, he says that, um, cry to her, he says, that her warfare is ended. And, uh, you know, uh, this harkens back to what we were talking about in, in uh, St. Paul saying that you, you were once enemies of God, right? In our, in our alienated, sinful nature, in our, in our um, uh, uh, apart from Christ, we were born enemies of God. Uh, and we were, in, a, in that sense, as enemies, we were at war with God. Um, the sinful nature hates God. It wrestles against God. And yet God here is saying, I'm not at war with you. <laughs> right? right? When the angels appear to the shepherds, what do they say to them? Uh, peace on earth. Right? Meaning, hey, listen, God is bringing this message of peace to you. He's saying to you that he's not at war with you. That you are his friend. Well, this is this is good news, right? He says, "Cry to her that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins." And folks, that is a universal statement. In other words, uh, that is not just to the people of Israel at that time, but it is to all people everywhere that our iniquity has been pardoned, and that uh, that that we have, in a sense, we have received double from the Lord for all our sins. Now, where have we received double for all our sins, right? If, our, if all our sins were punished, of course, that would mean death and hell. It would mean an, an eternity of torment. Uh, and yet all our sins have been punished double. Well, how can you double eternity, right? right. Uh, you have to have, in order to do that, you have to have an eternal 
entity, an eternal person come and, and, and make that payment, which is exactly what happens when God becomes flesh in Jesus Christ. He is the eternal God. Uh, there is no beginning. There is no end. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when that one came, when that one took on our eternal punishment and suffered hell for us on the cross, uh, we, in, in that sense, we received double for all our sins because we received it in him. Everyone who is in Christ uh, has, in that sense, been punished in Christ. That's why you know, the apostle says that I have been crucified with Christ. Well, where have we been crucified with Christ? We weren't crucified with Christ. We weren't up there. But when we were baptized, we were. All our sins were nailed to the cross. All our sins have been punished in Christ. And we have received from the Lord double for all our sins. And therefore, God is not at war with us. God is at, at peace with us. And um, he, he, he continues here. He says that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. That is, what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection, in his session at God's right hand, right now God, Christ sits at God's right hand. When he comes again is the day when all flesh shall see it together. That is, even those who are dead, those who are buried at sea, those whose bodies have turned to ashes, whether by cremation or by deterioration, decay, right? right? Every one of them will be raised to see together the vindication of God. And on that day, that is the day when God's people will be fully comforted. You know, the last chapter of Revelation talks about God wiping away every tear from our eyes, right? Well, why does, why does God wipe away every tear? Because he's comforting us. And that's what eternity will be. Eternity will be a uh, will be a comfort, you know. So finally, what Isaiah talks about here, he talks about the, you know the grass of the field and all the people are grass. In other words, look, you and I, we're here today, and we're gone tomorrow. You know, there we are not eternal. There was a time when we didn't exist. We exist today, but there will be a time again when this world won't recognize us because we'll be gone. Right. And, uh, and, and that's the nature of human beings. We are, we're fallible, we're, we're sinful, we're, we're um, uh, uh, corruptible, right? Uh, and, and we're subject to time and death, right? right. Uh, but what is, it that, what is it that doesn't change? Uh, we change, you know, and, and, our, and our natural bodies will change. We've been changing all our life, right? From the time we're a zygote in the womb <laughs> to, uh, to the day when uh, our bodies turn to dust, right? And it, it testifies to our change. Uh, well, um, what is it that doesn't change then? Uh, what doesn't change is God's word and God's promise. He says here, the grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In other words, what is unchanging uh, is the promises that God makes to us, uh, the word of God. And so the, this comfort that God talks about, that God has instituted the comfort, the peace that God has instituted through Jesus and his death uh, is is what he delivers to us 
in in the preaching of the word and in, in the word of God, which stands forever. It will never change. And it will be uh, if, if Christ tarries, if he doesn't come for another 10,000 years in in six and eight and 10,000 years, this word will still be comforting those who believe and, and still bringing this message of peace to us. So this is a wonderful, wonderful text. Um, and, and by the way, the next verse, go up, go up high on a mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Uh, in other words, who is it that speaks these words? Well, it's the church. The church speaks these words to the world. And uh, uh, that brings up the next uh, lesson, which is in 1 Corinthians. And I'm just going to read the first couple verses of this lesson. Um, this is how one should regard us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 is the lesson. He says, this is how one should regard us uh, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. In other words, Paul is talking about him and his companions in ministry, and he's saying this, what God requires of us is that we be faithful to what? To these mysteries of God, to the good news that God proclaims through his word. And uh, so what it is, it's the same thing that uh, he's, Isaiah is saying when he tells Zion to go up and, and uh, uh, you know, stand on this hill and preach the good news. Well, that's what Paul is saying. That's the, that's the role and ministry of, of uh, pastors, we might say today, right? Now, I'm going to just kind of skim over that lesson because I want to talk about the gospel lesson. And this is kind of important for us. Uh, uh, this is in uh, chapter 11 of Matthew, starting in verse 2. Now, when John, that's the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered and, and Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sign, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Uh, now, I'm going to get back to this lesson in a second. Uh, but I, I want you to see, folks, first... Um, how much John the Baptist is really like all of us, right? Right. Uh, John the Baptist was this great preacher. You know, he's talking about, it, it really is, according to Christ, as we'll see here, uh, John the Baptist is the one that Isaiah is talking about when he tells him, comfort, comfort my people, right? Right. Speak peace to Jerusalem. Uh, John is the one who does that when he points out the Savior to come when he points to Christ and says, this is God's beloved son, right? Right. Uh, well, now John has been arrested because he was preaching the law, and which was one of his duties. Uh, he was faithful to the word of God, and he preached to Herod, and Herod threw him in prison, and, and he's been languishing in prison for some time. And yet what he's waiting for is the fulfillment, in a sense, well, not in a sense, what John has been waiting for is the last day when Christ judges the living and the dead, right? And this is of course our, our Christian hope as well. Well, John thought it was going to come a lot sooner. John thought that the kingdom of God, like the disciples, we find out the disciples later thought this too, that the kingdom of God was going to come immediately. And so here is John in prison, 
And what is he, what is he wondering? He's wondering why Jesus hasn't come. Uh, where, is, where is this salvation that the Christ is supposed to bring? Now, what strikes me about that is how much he is like each one of us. And especially as we're thinking about Advent, and in Advent we're thinking about the hope of the last day when Jesus comes and, and uh, redeems us completely. And, uh, and John is kind of, uh, you know, John is there in prison, and his Advent is, wait, you know, his, his celebration of Advent is waiting in prison for Jesus to do all these things. And the answer that Jesus gives him, and the answer that Jesus encourages him with, uh, we might say the answer that Jesus comforts John with, the one he comforts, comforts John with, is this. He says, he, he says to the, the disciples of John, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is one who is not offended by me. Now, uh, in other words, what he's saying is, look at what I'm doing, John. And what I'm doing is, a, is, a, is releasing these, these sick, these blind, the lame, the dead who are being raised up. And in this is a demonstration of Jesus' power. And a, and a sample of Jesus' mission. You know, all these miracles that Jesus does really tells us who he is and what he comes to do. Well, who is he? He's the Son of God. He's the Savior. What does he come to do? He comes to free us. He comes to release us. He comes to redeem us. Now, it happened for the blind and the lame and the dead uh, that Jesus raised. It happened for them in that day. And what happened for them then is going to happen for everyone that believes in Christ and is waiting for his return on the last day. So in other words, what he's saying is, look, John, it's already begun, right? And uh, this is where Christians really take hope because what has happened in the work of Christ? Christ lived the perfect life for us. He went to the cross and suffered the wrath of God for us. He suffered our eternal punishment. He was raised from the dead. And, uh, um, and this, is, uh, uh, this is what God intends for each of us. And by doing these things, Jesus has begun uh, the powers that will be complete on the last day. In other words, we, we might say, that in Christ, the resurrection has already begun. In Christ, the new age has already begun. And uh, when we uh, are baptized, we're received into that new age. We're received into the kingdom of Christ. When, we, uh, when Christians go and they take communion, they're receiving uh, the benefits, uh, the peace, and the joy that God distributes uh, through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so it, it has already begun. Our deliverance has already begun. And whenever we hear the good news of Jesus, whenever we uh, remember our baptism, whenever we take the Lord's Supper, whenever we receive, confe whenever we receive absolution, uh, 
uh, we're tasting of the good powers of the age to come, that age that we're waiting for as we uh, think about Advent, we think about the Advent of Christ, the coming Christ. Uh, we're already tasting what we will completely receive and, and have when Christ returns. Uh, so, uh, well, that's where I'm going to stop today, folks, because uh, we're coming to the end of the broadcast. I always, one of the things I always do here in these broadcasts, I always wait till the last minute and then, oh boy, I got a bunch of stuff to say, but I don't have time to say it. <laughs> and today I'm not going to do that. Uh, uh, as I said at the beginning, the Wittenberg Door is a ministry of Gethsemane Lutheran Church sponsored by the Central Ohio Missions Association. Uh, Gethsemane Lutheran Church is at 219 East Church Street in Marion. We're right between uh, the old YMCA and Rocky's Bicycle Shop, kind of landmarks in, in our city. And um, our services are Saturday afternoon at 430 and Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., 4.30 p.m., Saturday afternoon, and then 4.30, uh, I'm sorry, 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Now, folks, we want to, if you don't have a, a church home, uh, we want to invite you to come and, and uh, taste and see, as we say, that the Lord is good. Uh, come hear the good news and, and come um, uh, in thankfulness uh, for all that Christ has done for us. Uh, and uh, we welcome you to come. Uh, we are uh, a liturgical church, and, and uh, so our, our, our worship services are conducted with reverence and all. But listen, folks, come as you are. Uh, you don't have to um, uh, dress up and, and be something that you're not to, to be part of our service. So we, we invite you to come. We invite you to be part of the service. And uh, uh, we invite you, at the beginning of the year, I want to just make this last announcement, at the beginning of the year we're going to do a Christian faith class. That is, we're going to do an introduction of what the, what the, what the Christian church teaches and, and uh, what it practices. Um, that'll be the first Saturday in January. We invite you to be part of that. We thank you for being with us today, and we hope you'll join us again next Friday at 11.15. Amen. Consisting of Bob Hope, Irving Berlin, Jack Benny, Groucho Marx, their wives and their children at this most happy occasion.